Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Just another uh, another day in paradise, my brother. Anxious to get this one underway. Collision in Korea. What an amazing event that was. It really was, and uh, I'm looking forward to covering it. It's been one of our more requested conversations, uh, so we're going to make sure that we bring it to you today. But first, let's circle back to last week. We covered Spring Stampede 1994. What was the feedback you got? Well, first of all, the cover art that uh, your man Dave Silva did was, I mean, I mean, I laughed for 20 minutes. I must have gone back and looked at that cover art probably a half a dozen times, and Lori and I were just cracking up <laughs> when we saw it. It was so good. He's so great at that stuff. But I got a lot of really positive feedback from it. Uh, a lot of people enjoyed the show. I was surprised, really. I thought it was a, a show that wouldn't have much interest, but the feedback was, uh, was exceptional. Well, there was a lot of good matches on the show and, uh, there's a lot going on in WCW right then. And, and we got, you know, two really good stories out of it. We, we finally talked about Missy Hyatt's lawsuit and you took a little bit of flack online for the way you talked about Missy. Uh, Who cares? Nah, I kind of thought you'd say that. And then I think a lot of people were really intrigued by the Rick rude funeral story, which may have seemed out of place, but that was really the last pay-per-view that we saw. And since I knew that a lot of those hard feelings uh, were, you know, based around his inability to come back and wrestle later, uh, and maybe him blaming you for some of that. Uh, I thought it was the right spot. Um, anyway, let's talk about it. Korea. Yeah, before, before we do that, um, you know, and I thought about this once we got done recording the episode, it, one of the things that I wanted to add to last week's show and I'll cover it here was one of the most enjoyable things that happened to me when I inducted, uh, diamond Dallas page into the WWE hall of fame was that uh, Rick Rude was being inducted posthumously as well. And Rick's son was there, as was his wife. And I wasn't sure, you know, based on what happened at the funeral, you know, how they would react to me. Because, again, I was pretty convinced that, in, you know, for Rick, I, I was the bad guy. I was the, the person who wouldn't, you know, make everything right so that he could get back in the room again or in the ring again. Therefore, I was, you know, the subject of his wrath, I guess. And I just wasn't sure. And it was such a, a great thing when I, I got to the hotel and I checked in and I was down uh, talking to a few people. I think I was talking to Jerry Briscoe at the bar and Ric Flair. And Rick's son came up to me and introduced himself. I never would have, you know, recognized him. He's just, you know, he, he's so big. And, he's, you know, last time I saw him, he was a little kid. And he came up to me and he introduced himself and had nothing but great things to say and asked me if I wanted to come over and say hello to his mother, which I did. And I was really grateful for that moment. That To me, that was probably the highlight of that whole experience. I'll do respect to Dallas and having the opportunity to induct him. But on a personal level, that was a big moment for me. So I just wanted to throw that in there and follow up. Well, I'm glad you did. You know, it's those little moments that make the show special. And we hope you guys uh, are digging what we're doing. You can get a little more bonus content, some behind the scenes action over at patreon.com forward slash 83 weeks. But let's talk about why we're here. Collision in Korea. It went down way back in 1995 on April 28th and 29th. And, uh, what town in North Korea did this go down? My hillbilly self cannot pronounce this word. Well, um, I'm not Korean, so I'm not sure that I have it right, but I think, um, the consensus is at least here in the United States, it's pronounced Pyongyang. Okay. I've heard it Pyongyang, uh, Pyongyang. I've heard it different inflections, but I say Pyongyang. I'm going to take a stab at it and go with Pyongyang as well. 
Uh, Collision in Korea, as we know, it was also known as the Pyongyang international sports and culture festival for peace. You wrote in your book by early 95, we had rebuilt our relationship with new Japan. Antonio Inoki, a former Japanese Senator and then chairman of the company called me and asked for some help contacting Muhammad Ali, whom he had fought in a boxing versus wrestler fight back in the 1970s. Ali had recently been a part of a WCW event. And I was able to get them in touch. When you first got that call from Anoki, did you know why he wanted Muhammad Ali or had y'all talked about that yet? Well, actually I wasn't very clear in the book. Antonio Anoki had uh, asked me to help him get in touch with Muhammad Ali about a year earlier, just for a meeting in Denver. It wasn't a part of an event or anything like that. And through you know, Ted Turner and some of the, the executives that were in Turner Broadcasting, who I was friendly with, um, we Turner had a very good relationship with Muhammad. So it was an easy thing for me to do. And that's I, I brought them together the first time for that meeting. And that was just to kind of get reacquainted. There was no cameras. There was no media. It was just uh, Antonio Noki and a group of people from New Japan and myself and Sonny Ono were a part of that. Brad Riggins was there as well. Was a part of that private meeting in Denver, and then it was about—I uh, guess it was close to a year later—when uh, Antonio Noki called me and said, "You know, we would like you to come over to, you know, first to Japan. I think we had an event in Japan either before or after Korea. I can't remember anymore." And in that conversation, also asked me if I thought that I would be able to convince Muhammad to come over as a part of that tour with WCW and I was happy to oblige and it was a fairly easy thing to do. Actually, there is a, uh, a video floating around that went sort of viral earlier this year and it got hundreds of thousands of views sort of breaking down how WCW came to do an event in Korea. And, and one of the theories is that Anoki and his desire to do a show in Korea was politically motivated. Can you speak to that about, you know, was there any, Truth to that, how the idea came about, what the theory is, anything like that? Sure. Uh, we talked about it quite a bit, I, and I spoke to Brad Ringens about it uh, at length. Uh, clearly, I wasn't familiar with Japanese politics and a lot of things that were going on over there, but uh, Antonio Noki was uh, a member of the Japanese diet, as it's referred to. It's very similar in, in many respects to the U.S. Senate here in, in our country, and Anoki had gone through quite a bit of controversy. He had been connected to some illegal arms trading and shipments, not directly, but indirectly uh, attached to that controversy. And he, he was in a bit of trouble uh, politically. Uh, Antonio Anoki believed that a sports festival uh, was something that could bring the two countries together. And I think more importantly, he felt that you know, if he could be the Japanese representative of the of the diet to bring an event like this off, uh, along with the North Koreans, that it would somehow enhance his uh, political stature. So it, it was definitely a political move. There was there's certainly no financial uh, reason to do it. There was no money change hands that I'm aware of. Uh, it, it was simply a promotional and political. I hate to call it a stunt, but that's really what it was. Well, yeah. And, uh, it's, it's framed as a world world peace festival, which is, uh, I guess Anoki's deal at the time. You guys are going to 
go on to have a pretty fruitful relationship with new Japan. We've talked about Starcade 95, which is in the archives and, you know, lots of other stuff that you guys did with them. You wrote in your book, when I got the phone call, I was asked if we'd be interested in bringing some of our guys to North Korea. And I have to tell you on a personal level, I was excited. So when I got that phone call, an opportunity to go to a place that is off limits to Americans, I jumped at it. I said, absolutely no problem. I didn't discuss it with anyone. I didn't ask for permission. I didn't think about the fact that as an American, I was prohibited from even going to North Korea and spending money there. I also just assumed that a lot of guys would feel the same way I felt. Well, that came to back to bite me in the ass. It turned out to be more difficult than I expected to get wrestlers to come along. Hogan played with his Fu Manchu a minute, looked down at the floor, then back at me. Hmm, brother, I don't think I can make that one. So before we talk about the Hogan story in your book, I don't know that a lot of our listeners understand what the situation was with North Korea in 95, but typically Americans weren't even allowed to go there, right? Well, not typically. Um, As a matter of fact, when I landed, when I got off the plane in North Korea, and we'll get into this more, I'm sure, later on in the, the episode. But one of the first things that the North Koreans did was separate the entire group into pairs. Sonny Ono and I were grouped together as a pair, and we were each each pair was assigned basically a Korean version of the Secret Service. And their job was to follow us, trail us. Um, they, they all spoke perfectly fluent English, so they were also there to... Um, brainwash us, if you will. And, uh, and of course, one of the first things they did was, was take our passports away from us. So it was a very surreal, um, situation, but you know, a lot of the guys, you know, were not really interested in going over to North Korea. None, number one, because it, it was a very isolated country. We all know more now about North Korea, especially over the last couple of years, um, because of, politics and because of the negotiations or lack thereof that have been going on for the last 15 or 20 years, the, you know, nuclear proliferation of North Korea is something that exists now that didn't really exist, at least to the extent that it does now back then. So there was a lot of unknown, but everybody knew, you know, it was a country run by a dictator. Everybody knew that it was off limits. Uh, I think the fear of what people didn't know about North Korea was a much bigger issue than I thought it would be. Um, I was a little, oh, I look back at it now and it was stupid for me to do what I did. I probably wouldn't do it again today in, in today's environment, but, um, I guess I just wasn't worried about it. I, I really believed that by going over to North Korea, number one, we'd, we'd get a fair amount of press, which by the way, I was surprised we didn't get nearly as much as I thought we would. But I thought we'd get a lot of press. And again, my, my goal at that time in particular was to establish WCW as a much more international uh, brand than had previously been attempted or, or achieved. So there was a lot of reasons I wanted to go over there from a business perspective. But, you know, one of it was personal. I love the idea of going into a country where most Americans are not allowed. And to your point about, you know, typically weren't allowed – my secret service person, Korean secret service person, told me that officially I was the seventh American to step foot in North Korea that hadn't been shot down or captured. Think about that. I was the seventh person to step on Japanese soil as an American 
that hadn't been either shot down or captured. Now, again, I, you know, I didn't realize it as much then as I do now. A lot of what the North Koreans that were assigned to us told us wasn't necessarily factual or, or, or even remotely true. This is a country and people in the United States don't get it. They, you, and you can't. It's not because we're not intellectually capable of getting it. But until you've stepped foot in North Korea in particular, you cannot imagine what generations of brainwashed North Koreans are like. It, it's, not, you, it's not possible to imagine what it's like. You think you can? I thought I understood it. You know, I had grown up, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, hearing about how, you know, the Soviet Union, you know, everything was censored and all the news was from the government and, you know, they brainwashed their citizenry and all that kind of stuff. And you imagine what it was like or what it would be like, but until you actually see it and, and, and how it manifests as a part of their entire daily life, it's just overwhelming. So, of course, when I was told that I was the, only the seventh American to step foot in North Korea that hadn't either been shot down or otherwise captured, um, it made a pretty significant impression on me. Talk to me about the, uh, the Hulk Hogan conversation. You know, I mean, I understand this is going to be the largest crowd in the history of professional wrestling, right? I mean, so it makes sense. You would want to trot out your biggest star, Hulk Hogan. Where does the conversation happen? And did it really, did you get an answer that quickly and it was done? Or did you continue to try to soft sell it? No, look, contractually Hulk wasn't obligated to do any international live events. Um, there were a couple that, that he wanted to do because we felt that, you know, he felt, we felt, uh, they would be very profitable and we'd move a lot of merchandise. And obviously he had, he was very vested and had a great stake in merchandise sales. So he, you know, he went over to Germany and, and, and things like that. But going over to North Korea or going over to Japan, uh, those were carve-outs. Uh, not, not North Korea specifically, but Japan was a carve-out. So in order to get him to do it, I had to you know, get him to volunteer to do it, um, particularly because there was going to be no licensing or merchandising opportunities in North Korea. Uh, it was a long trip, no doubt about it. And the fact that he just, Hulk just didn't really want to travel. Uh, that extensively. So in terms of where did I go? Uh, I was down, I, I was down in Florida and I had spent a lot of time in Florida, you know, between shooting shows at Disney MGM studios and, and dealing with, you know, Hulk and Randy and, you know, a lot of talent was already down there. And it was oftentimes easier for me to go down to where they were in a more relaxed environment than to have creative meetings and discussions inside the CNN center. It just always seemed too formal. So I, I was down in Florida. I, I was at his home, and I said, look, this is going to be a hell of an opportunity. Uh, by that time, Muhammad Ali was already on board. He was excited to do it. And I, I did my best. You know, I can be a pretty decent salesperson when I have to be. And I put on my salesman's shoes, and I was dancing, and I was doing all kinds of, you know, my best, you know, salesman moves. And uh, <laughs> and the way I described it in the book is really accurate. You know, Hulk just looked at me and he let me, you know, get my pitch out and I was just full of energy and enthusiasm and excitement, you know, and he stroked his room at you and said, nah, sorry, I can't make that one brother. And I, I pretty much expected it. It wasn't that I wanted 
Hulk to go over as much as it was Antonio Noki really wanted Hulk Hogan. I think f- f- from Antonio's point of view, to be able to bring Muhammad Ali, who was just such a an amazingly uh, respected world figure, uh, even at that time, to be able to bring Muhammad Ali and Hulk, Hulk Hogan over to Korea, I think would have been absolutely the best thing that could have happened for Antonio from a political point of view. But Hulk was just not interested and he wasn't obligated. Let's keep it moving here. You wrote in your book. So how do you get the state department permission to visit a country that is uh, an international pariah and officially at war with the United States? The short answer is you don't, you just do it. State department wouldn't really know about our trip until we were there. And we weren't going to fly directly to North Korea from the States. There was no way to do that. We could go to Tokyo, perform with new Japan, and then get on a plane and go with them to North Korea. Holy shit. This is the very definition of ask forgiveness, not permission. Who came up with this strategy? (laughs) No. And that's exactly how I felt about it. And now you have to understand that, you know, I looked up to Ted Turner quite a bit and, and I want to make it really clear here because it's easy for people to assume when they listen to a podcast like this, if I'm not careful how I say certain things that it gives one the impression that Ted and I were closed and we communicated on a regular basis. That wasn't the case, especially now at this point, early in 1995. It changed later on after we launched Nitro and everything. I got closer to Ted and communicated him with, with him much more. But up at this point, uh, I had very little direct contact with Ted. I would see him at company functions. I think I, you know... I was at a Christmas party or two when he, when he was there and things like that, but there was no direct connect, but you know, I understood anecdotally and in, and indirectly through some of the people that actually reported to Ted his worldview, you know, for example, you know, I was just reading an, an article how, um, evidently WWE has dropped the ban on certain wrestling words. We all know that WWE up heretofore you know, didn't like the word belt as it related to a championship. So there were certain words like belt and title and, you know, fan and things like that, that, that Vince has a real problem with. Ted Turner was not that much different. Um, if, if you use the word foreigner or foreign as, as an employee of Turner broadcasting, you were chastised by your management, not, not, not severely, but you were corrected to never use the word foreign or foreigner. It was international or referred directly to the place of origin of someone in particular that you're talking about, as opposed to just referring to them as a foreigner. Ted was very, uh, he felt very strongly about that. And it was part of his mission, I think. You know, T- Ted Turner launched CNN because he believed that he could bring the world closer together with a 24-hour worldwide cable news franchise. And that's why and how CNN was born. Ted was the first one to do that. And he really believed that he could bring the world closer together. He felt that he could, I don't know, I don't want to say achieve world peace, but he could certainly improve upon the world's relationship with each other, countries within the world's relationship with each other. The same thing was true with the Goodwill Games. Ted funded the Goodwill Games at a substantial loss to Turner Broadcasting because, like Antonio Inoki, to a degree, believed that sport 
kind of broke down a lot of cultural and language barriers, more cultural barriers than language barriers. And I just believed, you know, from a corporate perspective, I believed that if things would have gone south and I would have gotten in trouble with the State Department and there would have been some kind of political issues, number one, we'd get more press. So I was up for that. I didn't mind that. And number two, I knew that once I got, you know, evidently got out of jail or released from the State Department or whoever would have arrested me, I believed in my heart that Ted would have given me a wink and a nod and said, you should ask first, knowing that if I would have asked, I would have been denied the opportunity. So I didn't tell anybody. I didn't have to tell anybody. Well, I guess I should have, but I, I didn't. I was willing to take the risk. Well, I mean, I guess I'm glad you did, but it is. I don't know. Something that a lot of people would not have risked. You even wrote by the time the news reached the United States, we'd probably be back in Japan. If not home, I went over to CNN and told some people I knew what I was thinking about. What's the worst thing that will happen if the government finds out? And they said, well, they might detain you. They might question you for a few days. They might hold you. They might find you. And I said, am I going to jail? If I was going to go to jail, I might've reconsidered maybe, but if it was just going to be a pain in the ass, I really wanted to go. And they said, nah, it's not really likely you'll go to jail. So I gathered the troops and off we went. But this feels like something that a lot of guys would have had a question about when, when plans fail to get Hulk Hogan signed up, do you immediately pivot to Ric Flair or do you ask Anoki what, who he wants besides Hogan or what's the backup plan for sort of your headline attraction? No, I, I mean, I knew that, you know, Ric Flair was an option. The Japanese Antonio Noki really respected Ric Flair. He knew that he could have a great match with Ric Flair. Um, I talked to Brad Ringens, who is my liaison. I didn't, you know, speak on a regular basis with Antonio. He speaks pretty good English, but in, you know, n- not well enough for us to communicate on a daily basis. So Brad Ringens was my liaison, who also worked with Masa Saido, and that's how we kind of uh, facilitated negotiations and discussions. So when Hulk Hogan made it clear he wasn't ready to go, I talked to Brad. Brad checked in with the Japanese audience and they were very excited about Ric Flair. So it was, it it wasn't a big challenge. I talked to Rick about it and, you know, I know he probably had second guesses or or second thoughts, I should say, um, after he agreed, but my recall on this and Rick may recall it a little bit differently. I've, I've read, in his book, you know, quotes about this particular incident. But my recollection of it was that initially Rick was pretty cool with it. Rick liked going over to Japan and he looked at North Korea as just, you know, another big event that we're going to do. I think after he agreed to do it, people started talking to him about what he actually agreed to do. And he started to get a little, you know, he didn't go back. He didn't threaten not to go or anything like that. But I think he the, the trepidation in in Rick's uh, voice a, a few times, you know, after he agreed to go, made it clear that he was having, I don't want to say second thoughts, but something real close to a second thought. Let's keep it moving here. Um, you wrote in your book, as we were getting ready to land, I looked out the window and the landscape absolutely amazed me. It was barren of life. It was a desolate desert. I, I live in the desert, but the North Korean desert looks nothing like the desert. I know I can't describe how desolate it was. I thought to myself, my God, how does anybody live here? 
The people who met us were superficially friendly. They were very direct and professional, but I realized that in their minds, it was still 1951. They were still at war with the rest of the world. And it was evident in everything we saw when we stepped off the plane, the drab architecture, the way they looked at foreigners, everything. The first thing they did was separate us into pairs. Sonny Ono was with me and we got paired up and we were then assigned an interpreter who was actually a member of the North Korean secret police. She was supposed to stick with us the entire time we were there. And she asked us for our passports, which were immediately confiscated when we stepped into the airport. Passports are about as useless as tits on a boar hog in a place like North Korea, but taking them away, lets you know that they were in control, not you. Uh, this has to make some of the boys nervous to say the least when this happens, carry me back. Well, before I get to that, you know, I wanted to describe the flight over there and the, the way I described it in the book. When we, when we left Japan, we flew over to North Korea on a North Korean military transport. We didn't go over there on a nice Boeing 727 or 3737, anything like that. The only planes that flew in and out of um, North Korea tended to be uh, military planes uh, or official government planes. So the North Koreans and the Japanese had arranged to have a North Korean military transport, which was kind of amazing in itself because technically, you know, the North Koreans and the Japanese, the, the hatred, the wars, the animosity between those two countries has gone on for generations. So just the fact that a North Korean military transport landed in Japan is in and of itself a sizable point of interest. Now, when we got on the plane, as you can imagine, any military transport is quite a shock to your system when you're used to flying commercial. It it was indeed a military transport. It was loud. It was old. Um, you could tell by looking at it, it was at least 30 or 40 or more years old. Uh, it, it didn't give you a sense of comfort. Let's put it that way. Now, on the way over, you know, uh, Hawk and Animal were on the plane. The Steiner brothers were there. Uh, we had a lot. Of, we had a great crew of people that went over there. Scott Norton was on the sh- on the trip. Two Cold Scorpio, who we talked about uh, on last week's episode, was on the trip. We had a, we had a lot of guys there, and we're all on this plane. And I happened to be sitting uh, next to across the aisle, but next to Muhammad Ali. And I was able to, you know, Muhammad Ali, when he, he, he could be fairly at this point, uh, because of his Parkinson's, he could be fairly articulate. You could understand him if he whispered, but he almost literally had to be whispering in your ear. If he tried to speak so that you could hear him, you know, from two feet away, he had a very, very difficult time. But when he was whispering, you could actually have a pretty, pretty solid conversation with him. And it was on the way over there when I'm talking to Muhammad Ali, which is still to this point. Now I'm, I'm a huge – there's probably nobody that I look up to more in sports than Muhammad Ali. And to this day, I still tweet everything that comes out of you know, the Muhammad Ali camp. And I was so grateful for the opportunity to, to become friends with Muhammad Ali but to really have an opportunity just to have a one-on-one conversation, not much different than you and I are right now. And the fascinating thing was on the way over there, Muhammad Ali explained to me that growing up as a, as a young boy in, I think it was, uh, I can't remember where he grew up as in Kentucky, 
Louisville. He would go to wrestling matches and he was enamored with Gorgeous George. That was like, as, as a child, Gorgeous George was like his, you know, Rock or his Hulk Hogan or his Stone Cold Steve Austin. And as Muhammad, and he, back then he was Cassius Clay, as he was coming up through the ranks of boxing and he would always envision himself as this gorgeous George type character. And when he went on to become, you know, after the Olympics and when he became a professional, became, became very, very successful, that persona that we saw so much of in promoting his fights was a derivative of Muhammad Ali's version of Gorgeous George. So Muhammad Ali was a huge wrestling fan. And he told me all kinds of stories about him growing up watching professional wrestling. It was so fascinating and so personal that that trip over, even though we were on a North Korean military transport that we weren't sure was actually going to make it, that that moment was, I think, probably one of my favorite <clears throat> personal moments in all of the things that I that I've done in professional wrestling. It just it was amazing. I I get chill bumps thinking about it right now. That's awesome, man. Thank you for sharing. Um, oh, let's go. Let's go back though to the de- desolation. <clears throat> I went off on a tangent. I'm sorry about Muhammad. As we're coming in, and there was a fair amount of turbulence. Uh, and and again, you're in a military transport, so if you're not used to that, it's a little unnerving. Uh, I was a pilot at the time, so I, w- I felt a little bit comfortable. Um, I was used to that kind of thing in my own plane, but it was, we were all just a little bit rattled and I looked out the window and when I wrote the book, I was living in, in Arizona, which is all desert, most of it. And I looked out the window and the only way I can describe it is it's almost like if you were in a movie and you're in a spaceship and you're landing on Mars and in that movie, you look out the window right before you touch down and you look at this red, reddish, because the soil was very reddish, uh, this red, absolutely barren of life. Not a cactus, not a little weed over here and a cactus over there. Nothing. I've never seen so much nothing in my entire life. And that's when it dawned on me. I mean, I, I literally felt like I was landing on a different planet. This was not what I expected and not what I was used to. It was really, it left a strong impression on me. So you get off, you're paired with uh, an interpreter, you're broken up into groups and, um, told to turn over your passports. Carry me through the reaction from some of the boys when they hear that they're getting broken up, assigned a person and bye-bye passport. It was really interesting. The, the Koreans did a great job of keeping us apart. So I didn't get a chance to go, hey, Rick Steiner, how do you feel about getting your passport taken away from you? I mean, once they separated us and our Korean police person, whatever, CIA, Secret Service, whatever they were, secret police, once they were assigned to us, we were immediately escorted over to a car. So there was not a lot of, not a lot of communication with each other. Um, as pairs, once we arrived, they did a good job of keeping us apart. So I, I really, you know, I've subsequently, obviously I've talked to a few of the guys. We've read how Ric Flair felt. You know, I've talked to Scott Norton. Every time we see each other, we kind of relive much of this trip uh, because it left a really big impression on him. 
for reasons I'm sure we'll talk about later. But um, I don't know. You know, I didn't get to see everybody's reaction. It, it caught us all quite a bit off guard. Yeah, I can imagine. And I just think about a guy like Rick Steiner or a guy like Scott Norton and boy, they were, they were not happy with that. Let's keep it going here. Meltzer would report all verifiable pro wrestling attendance records were shot to bits over the weekend. There's two shows put on by the North Korean government, new Japan pro wrestling and Antonio Inoki drew reported 340,000 fans to Pyongyang's Mayday stadium. Pro wrestling was the lead event of the Pyongyang International Sports and Culture Festival for Peace, almost a scaled-down version of an Olympic festival. The festivities over the three-day period included other sporting events like gymnastics, dancing, and martial arts, and scary rallies, with children proclaiming allegiance to the government of Kim Jong II and his late father, who was the former president. The opening night on the 28th nearly doubled the previous all-time attendance record for pro wrestling, drawing a reported 150,000 fans. And the following night shattered the record with an overflow crowd announced at 190,000. These figures were so staggering. It may be a long time coming before numbers like this are ever approached. Did you have an idea going over that there were going to be that many North Korean citizens at this thing? Absolutely not. And Dave's numbers were really close, but a little bit off. And these are numbers that I've heard even as recently as a couple months ago when I was in Tokyo, because we talked about this event when I was visiting with former New Japan Pro Wrestling executives and talent. Um, The first night was 170,000. The second night was 180,000 for a total of 350. But to answer your question directly, absolutely not. You know, we, we assumed it was going to be fairly big just given the nature of it, but I had no idea it was going to, I, it was mind boggling, just absolutely mind boggling to see that many people. Now they didn't all go out and buy a ticket. So (laughs) it is what it is and was what it was, but just to see that many people in an arena that big to watch wrestling just blew my mind. When did you first see the stadium? I I know that, you know, when I've done some research on this, it was said that they had you guys do a lot of different tours and you weren't really left to your own devices to just wander off. So you had like guided tours of North Korea. Was that before or after the wrestling show? That was before. Uh, I didn't see the arena until we got there for the event itself. The, 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 the tours that we did prior to the event, they were all political. You know, one of the first things that we did when we left the airport, we had a big motorcade of, you know, 1968 Mercedes sedans um, because Korea is a very, very poor country. And all the government, you know, the official high-profile government vehicles were like 30 or 40-year-old Mercedes Benz at the time or 20-year-old Mercedes at the time. So we, you know, in this long procession, because there were a lot of us, you know, not only the Americans, but there was a lot of, you know, Japanese wrestlers from New Japan and executives from the office and so forth. So there was a long procession of these old beat up Mercedes uh, with the Korean flags on them. So it was all very official. But we left the airport and the first thing that we had to do, and you have to remember the, I think it was Kim Il-sung was the... I believe I get them. I get them confused sometimes. I think Kim Il Sung had just died in 1994, <clears throat> in July of 1994. 
And again, this is the part that, you know, many people listening to this, even around the world, just will not be able to relate to. But the president that had passed away, Kim Il-sung, in 94, wasn't just the leader. He wasn't just the president. They looked at him as a godlike figure, almost supernatural. And it it's the only way I can really describe it. The, the harder I try to describe it, the more difficult it becomes. But if you can imagine, you know, if 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 you can imagine, you know, if you're a Christian, you know, you would look at the president of the United States and Jesus Christ as one and the same. You know, if you're a Buddhist, you know, you, you same thing. I mean, it, it's just hard to imagine. So this North Korea was officially when I was there, when we were there was in a state of mourning because it had been less than a year since this highly, you know, reverential figure that was godlike and also the leader of the, in fact, they call him the dear leader, um, had passed away. So the country was still in a state of mourning. And I think our presence there was a part of that mourning process. So when we left the airport in this procession of beat up Mercedes, the first thing that we did is have to stop at this huge statue of Kim Il-sung. We were about 20 minutes outside of the airport, now into Pyongyang. Huge statue. Now, there's television cameras everywhere. Now, when I say television cameras, I'm talking about circa 1950s television cameras, the the, the kind that when they were filming went click, 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 click. I mean, old shit, right? And there's all these, you know, Japanese media there from the government, and they were essentially documenting our visit and we were told by our secret police person to we were each given a, a bouquet of flowers and the, the executives all had to go up and lay these flowers at the feet of Kim Il-sung all of which was being filmed for propaganda purposes by the Korean government so that was our first kind of indoctrin indoctrination slash propaganda you know, mission for the day on our way to our hotel. Everything else that we did was similar in nature. You know, we went to the birthplace of the dear leader, you know, up on a mountaintop and spent hours having, you know, our English speaking translators communicate to us, you know, how this godlike leader of their country changed the world and, you know, all this amazing stuff that, you know, they believed. They really believed. Uh, another area that we went to, there were, there were, they had a statue there, and this one was one that really got to me and Sonny. Um, but we were standing at the statue that looked very similar, if not exactly the same, is the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, if, if you're familiar with that. It's, it's the monument that, with the big arch, and if you go back and look at you know the history of World War I and World War II, all the people that have conquered you know Paris made a point of you know, coming through in their military procession through the Arc de Triomphe, you know, to kind of establish themselves as the new leaders of, of France. Well, Korea has one too, North Korea. Now, this is where it got really interesting. So Sonny and I, you know, we're together with our secret police person. And she's, she, like I said, she's a female. She spoke really good English. And she began to explain to us that the North Koreans built this monument to honor the hundreds of thousands of Koreans, North Koreans, that were incinerated and murdered 
by Americans during the war. Now, at this point, you know, her explanation of it was becoming so graphic. And again, media cameras were there. We all recognized that we were part of this propaganda machine that was taking place. And it's hard to explain because I had never been in a situation like that. Nobody had briefed me, you know, because I was so, you know, determined not to ask for any permission from anybody. I had no idea what I was really getting into until I got there. But I knew I had to be pretty deferential while I was on camera. I couldn't challenge anybody and say, hey, what the hell do you mean? That didn't happen. For example, while we were at this monument where we were really being chastised as Americans for being part of a government that was so brutal to the Korean people, this woman also began to explain how North Korea and the dear leader ended World War II by defeating the Japanese. There was, as, as we're listening to her version of history, there was no mention of the United States involvement in ending the war. There was no mention of the United States using nuclear weapons or atomic weapons in forcing Japan to surrender. None of that happened, according to the Korean, North Koreans. So as I'm listening to this, and while I'm hearing the tick, 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 tick of the cameras that are rolling, filming every ounce of it, I, you know me well enough by now, it's hard for me to not say things when they come to my mind or into my mouth. And I, I caught myself wanting to say, but wait a minute, let me, let me, let's check that with my version of, of what we've been taught was what I wanted to do, but I knew better. And we, both Sonny and I just looked at each other and we realized just how extensive the propaganda and the indoctrination and just the way the Koreans look at the world. They, they are so isolated. They know so little about what's really going on in the world that they believe the propaganda that they've been taught since the day they were born. And they were taught to hate Americans. They were taught that we were the most evil, you know, people on the face of the earth. As a matter of fact, one of the more interesting things right after Sonny and I got into the beat up Mercedes with our Korean secret police person on, on our way to go lay flowers at the feet of, you know, Kim Il-sung and, and pay respects. She turned around and looked at us. She wasn't driving the car. She was in the passenger seat and Sonny and I were in the back and it was hot. It was warm in North Korea at the time, and there's no air conditioning in the car. And we're just trying to get a little uncomfortable. Our passports had been snatched, and we're kind of kind of getting a feel for what this trip is going to be like. And she turns around and looks at us in, in just in the most deadpan, serious tone, said, and while you're here, you are not to look at our women or rape them. <laughs> I looked at Sonny, and we both just looked her in the eye and said, okay. <laughs> and, and she was dead serious because they were, again, and you, and a lot of this I've learned in retrospect, but, and from being there, the, and this woman was probably younger than I was at that time. I guess I was in my early forties at this time, 43, 44, 42, 43. She might've been in her late thirties. And I know for a fact now that her, through her entire life, the Korean version of the world taught her that uh, uh, Americans are the most evil, that they, they, they would rape their children, or they would rape their women, and I'm not exaggerating, eat their children. 
That's how Americans, Westerners in general, but Americans in particular, because technically they were still at war with the United States when we were over there. From the time you were old enough to understand the language, you were taught that you know Americans are so evil that if they invade the country, they'll rape the women and literally eat the children. That's that's who we were dealing with. It was just it was the most fascinating. Even talking to you about it now, because I I don't think about it very much unless somebody asks me about it. But thinking about it in detail and breaking down some of those moments where it really impacted us is fucking mind boggling. It is. It's crazy to think that this ever happened. Talk to me a little bit about the hotel situation. You know, we've we've heard you know, stories from Bruce on something to wrestle about, you know, how Vader was sort of stuck in the Kuwaiti hotel. And whenever they went to certain areas of the world, that's where you had to stay. And, you know, you were, uh, you were risking it to leave the property, but you were safe inside the property. Talk to me about the hotel arrangements and, you know, what you were allowed or not allowed to do there. Well, we weren't allowed to do anything. Um, they kept us pretty busy. I mean, the schedule was was pretty tight uh, throughout, in addition to touring all the different monuments and paying homage to all the dear leaders and the history of Korea and all that. Uh, there were some um, cultural events. You know, I remember going to a you know, what would be best described as a version of an opera house. And it was a very nice, a very sophisticated, very cool place uh, and watched traditional, you know, Korean dancing and that type of thing, music, which is a a big part of that night. Um, we had several formal government sponsored dinners with a lot of government, you know, leaders and, and, and politicians and so forth. So there was a lot of that just kind of controlled activity going on. There was no real time. I, I found some, well, I'm sure we'll get into that in just a little bit, but we, if we weren't on tour and as you know, with our, our Japanese secret police person, if we weren't touring as a part of an entourage, uh, being shown about, uh, we were for the most part confined to our hotel, but they, they kept us really, really busy. It was very well organized. The hotel itself, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. One of the things that I learned, and again, if, if you, if you can find any pictures of the city of Pyongyang, um, it, it's really interesting because it's, it's all concrete. There's no trees, there's no pigeons, there's no squirrels, there's no chipmunk because they ate all that shit. As people were starving, that's another thing that was really, really noticeable right off the bat is, you know, I had spent a lot of time in Japan, so it's not like I wasn't used to seeing, you know, a different race of people who weren't, you know, physically as big as the average American. Uh, North Koreans made Japanese look huge, but it was because of malnutrition. They were gaunt. They were, their faces were sunken and hollow. Their eyes were sunken and hollow. They, they were just so gray was the only is the only way I can really describe their complexion. But it was all from malnutrition, which is why, by the way, I know this is going to sound crazy to people, but it's why you didn't see, you know, you go through the streets of Chicago, New York, you're going to see squirrels and pigeons everywhere and you know, occasional rat going by that weighs three or four pounds. You don't see any of that in Pyongyang, North Korea, because it gets eaten. Now, the other interesting aspect about North Korea is there are very few cars. The only cars that are there are government cars, right? 
And we ask our security person, I can't remember the name, I wish I could. The streets were like 10 lanes wide. I mean, they're the widest streets I'd ever seen. And I noticed that they ran perpendicular north and south. I mean, exactly north and south. Imagine if you went to the busiest airport in the world and built a city around the runways. And that's exactly what North or what Pyongyang is. And our, our, our attache, we'll call her that, our attache explained to us that the city of North Korea was built strategically so that those streets, not for cars, those streets could be used for air, you know, military aircraft to take off and land. So the entire city was built as a military base for the most part, or a potential one, if need be. The buildings themselves were as sterile as sterile can be. There was nothing architecturally that you would that would stand out in your eye. They all, I mean, they were big and as pretty as a big concrete building can be, they did their best, but it was sterile is the only word that comes to my mind. Um, now, the hotel that we were in was the hotel that government officials used to entertain other government officials. So by North Korean standards, it was probably, you know, a four-star, you know, Grand Hyatt somewhere. Uh, it, it wasn't bad, but by American standards, it was eh, a three-star maybe at best. There were, you know, the phones were ancient. It didn't matter because couldn't call out anyway. But just looking at the room, you know, the, the furniture, the bedding, just the, the colors, the drapery, it was all very old, very dated, and not not appealing to the eye. It was functional, but not appealing to the eye. But it was a comfortable hotel. It wasn't uncomfortable. It had a good restaurant. So, you know, we could go down and, and get a good breakfast or, or lunch or whatever, uh, as good as North Korean food can be. But uh, the hotel was decent. Was there a gym for the guys to work out? Or did you guys just have to go outside and run or do calisthenics? Or what was the deal? No, I don't recall there being a gym. There was not a gym that I was aware of. Uh, and it's interesting you bring up running. At, at that time, I was running a lot. I would get up and run generally six to eight miles a day. Um, take me about an hour and 20 minutes or an hour and 30 minutes, depending on the day and how I was feeling. And I, I ran religiously. I've always loved to run up until I blew my knee, uh, knees out a couple years ago trying to get ready for a marathon. I've always loved to run since I was a little kid. And, and especially back in 94, 95, I was running a lot. And I would just, I got up one morning. Uh, it was like six in the morning. So it was still dark, almost dark. Maybe the sun was just starting to come up, but there was nobody in the streets, nothing. It was perfectly quiet. So I went into my, my suitcase and I got out a pair of red sweatpants that I had. And I had either a bright green or bright yellow or some, you know, loud, bright colored shirt on. And I put on my running shoes and snuck out of the hotel. My attache wasn't sitting outside the door. So I thought, all right, great. I'm going to be able to get out and get a run in before anybody comes to get me to go pay homage to somebody. So I started running and I was running in the dark and I've always had a good sense of direction. I wasn't worried about getting lost. I, you know, kind of looked around, made sure I could identify a couple of buildings as landmarks and, 
It was really easy to know whether I was running north, south, east, or west because I was essentially running on a runway, pun intended. So I just took off running. And I thought, well, I'll be back by 7 or 7.30. I don't have anything to do on the schedule till around 9. Give me time to take a shower and off we'll go for the day. So I'm running, right? And about halfway through the run, now the sun's up. And all of a sudden, the streets start filling up with Koreans on their walking. Some of them had bikes. Most of them were walking on their way to work. Every one of them had on either a dark gray or a dark blue or a black suit with a white shirt and a black or blue or whatever tie. And I found out later that many of these people that were walking to work in factories or butcher shops or restaurants or whatever, wherever they worked for the government um, would walk to work in a suit. When they got to work, they had a locker. They would change into their work clothes. If you were a butcher, you would change into your butcher shit. You know, if you were a printer, you would change into your printing stuff, uniform. And then you would take those clothes off and put your suit back on to walk home at night. That's another example of just quirky little Korean thing. Anyway, going back to the story. So I leave. I'm on my run. The sun's starting to come up. Now all of a sudden the streets are filling up with Koreans on their way to work. As I said, most of them on bicycles. And here I am. Now I'm, I'm five ten and a half tops. At that time, I weighed about 180, 190 pounds. I'm not, you know, I'm an average size person. I'm not a big person. Compared to the North Koreans, I was like Godzilla. I'm not exaggerating. I mean, I felt like Kevin Nash. It's funny. I was just with Kevin Nash last weekend, and our table was right next to each other, and we're signing autographs and talking. And when we said goodbye, he came up to give me a gave me a hug, and I felt like a child. He's just so big. That's how the Koreans felt to me. I mean, it's just hard to imagine. And the fear in their eyes. Now, imagine they live in a world that's nothing literally, but now I'm not talking about the you know, phrase shades of gray, but their entire world is various shades of gray. The buildings, the streets, the houses. Well, there are no houses. They're just apartment buildings. But it is the bleakest, most void of color environment you've ever been in. The only color that I remember seeing was in the government billboards, the propaganda billboards, uh, the, the the billboards and the signage. And obviously I couldn't read it because it was in Korean, but paying homage to Kim Il-sung and, and messages of mourning and, and, and all of that. That stuff was in color, but everything else was one shade or another of gray except for this fucking idiot running down the middle of the street. And by, by the way, Koreans don't run, right? The fact that I was running was bizarre to them. I'm running for recreation. They think I'm running at them to rape their wives and eat their children while wearing red sweat pants and a bright green shirt. And I look like Godzilla. The fear in their eyes is indescribable. And I'm not exaggerating even a little bit. I can't even do a good job of trying to explain what that kind of fear looks like. It's, it's, it really left a strong impression on me. And they literally parted. Like if, if the street was a little bit crowded, they would step way off to the side, looking like they'd just seen death 
you know, running towards them. It was just surreal. And about that time, I started realizing that, I, you know, I should probably head back. This, this could get worse for me. So I spun myself around. I knew I had about 20 minutes or 30 minutes to get back to the hotel. It was going to take me that long. Now, as I'm running back to the hotel, now the school kids are coming out. Initially, it was workers, right? Now school kids are coming out. And they're all dressed in their little, you know, school uniforms. Every one of the boys looked exactly the same. Every one of the girls looked exactly the same in terms of what they had to wear. And many of them were standing on, were positioned on street corners in groups of eight or 10 or 12. And they're singing these military hymns or, or, or singing homage to the dear leader who they were still mourning. Every morning they would do this. Now I'm running by these groups of little kids and I'm starting to get a little nervous at this point. So I picked up the pace and got back to my hotel. By that time, my attache was there. And I just got read the riot act. I'm sure she thought she was going to the fucking Korean gulag because she lost she lost control of me. I'm sure she was fearful. And she was a high-ranking official. Yeah, it was it was a tense, tense moment, but I promised her that I would never do that again. And from that point forward, Rick Flair and I, because Rick liked to work out a lot, liked to work out a lot at that same time. After that experience, Rick Flair and I, we we ran the stairs together, just up and down the stairs in the hotel. That was the extent of our ability to work out. Let's get back to the show for a minute. You know, there's a a clip on the uh, show that I found somewhere on the internet. I probably shouldn't say, but just throw it in your Google machine. It's not on the WWE network, and well, people can guess why, but. Let's talk a little bit about the big, like Olympic performance they did where we see shots of you guys, a lot of the boys, quote unquote, sitting in the crowd. And it looks like it's the opening ceremony of the Olympics. I assume that happened before night one of the wrestling, or is that day one of the festival or what can you tell us about that? No, well, not knowing for sure, which one you're referring to. The one that stands out in my mind was night one. It was this amazing, amazing Olympic level opening ceremony display that was put on by North Korea. Now, understand North Koreans were putting this on for the world. They were trying to impress the entire world, not us. And the first of all, to see 170 or 180,000 people in, in, in that venue was mind boggling. But many of them were there to help put on this display and they'd, they'd have these cards and I can't really do a good job explaining this. I'd love to do a watch along on Patreon at some point. In fact, I think we're going to in another week or 10 days. But when you look at this footage from this event, these people would hold up these placards over their heads and it would form a moving image. And those moving images would, would vary And it. For example, you would have three or four of these amazing white doves and and the the, the 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 timing of these cards the synchronization of these cards was so amazing because if it, it, when we were in our seats we'd look and it literally looked like this animated white dove was flying all the way around the stadium and these were all people who were trained to put on this show or this event and they would alternate now at certain points There were actually missiles. They held up these placards that formed an image 
you know, hundreds of them at a time or thousands of them at a time in some cases, maybe more, there would be these images of missiles flying over the ocean towards the United States, not landing, but towards the United States. It was just on, first of all, it was the, the, just the precision and the discipline and the creative alone was amazing. But then when you start looking at the imagery that they were presenting to the world, it's just like, wow, this is like unfucking worldly. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the gate or lack thereof Meltzer says that he was told tickets, uh, ranged from 421, which is $202 for ringside seats on the field to 310 which is 149 for the bottom tier of the huge stadium. And the seats in the higher decks for the vast majority were priced at 51, which is 24 bucks. He would also continue as a socialist economy. The general public monthly stipend is about $50 per month per person. So on the surface, it seems pretty inconceivable that many of these tickets were sold at those prices. The reports we received though, is that the tickets were basically all sold with no papering either night. If there was no paper at those prices, probably the first night and definitely the second night would have beaten the all-time gate record for pro wrestling of 4.8 million set by new Japan on January 4th at the Tokyo dome. Uh, I'm going to step out on a limb and say this was majority paper. I, I have to believe it was. I, I, not only do I think it was papered, I think it was mandatory. Probably mandatory. Yeah. So uh, how did WCW participate financially in this? Or was there, or was it just, you know, are we doing it just for PR or did WCW get a payday in this? No, we got a payday over in Tokyo. We, we this was an adjunct to a deal that we did to, you know, for our guys to perform over in, in Tokyo for new Japan. So it was like a bonus show, if you will, uh, that we did do definitely for, for PR because there was no revenue to split that that's not why we did it. But from a financial point of view, we made enough money, uh, performing for new Japan in Tokyo, uh, before that to, to justify going over, you know, it's fun when you watch this show, I got the impression a lot of these folks watching have no idea what they're watching. Fair to say. Completely. Absolutely. The they were. They were as dumbfounded as I was running through the streets of Pyongyang in the dark in my red sweatpants. The first night, the main event, uh, doesn't feature Inoki or Flair. Instead, it's Hashimoto and Scott Norton going to a 20 minute draw. Now, of course, when you guys air the pay-per-view, I guess we should talk about that briefly. The pay-per-view airs with Mike Tanay and yourself on commentary and a third Japanese person who I did not recognize their name. And as soon as he started speaking, I realized, oh my God, it's Sonny Ono without the gimmick. Uh, why was Sonny the right guy to be the third commentator? When did you guys tape that and put together the show? Uh, well, we taped it. Oh, oh, all we really did was do the voiceovers for it in front of a green screen. Right. Uh, and, and that was done probably about a month and a half or two months after the show itself. Uh, Why was Sonny the right guy? You know, Sonny was very, you know, he was a lot more familiar uh, with the, the Japanese, the new Japan wrestlers. He, you know, spoke Japanese. He was Japanese. It added a little bit of credibility and international vibe to what we were doing today. Obviously today probably knew more uh, about the Japanese scene and what was going on in new Japan wrestling in terms of in ring historically. And that's why today was there, but Sonny was there literally for, um, 
just to add that international dimension to it. Sure. Allegedly, and this is directly from the observer, the fans in North Korea were totally unfamiliar with pro wrestling. And before both shows, they did introductory pieces on pro wrestling rules on the giant screens. The promotion of the event was largely built around the late Ricky Dozan, Muhammad Ali billed as the most famous athlete in the world and Antonio Inoki. Now, obviously Inoki is jockeying for some political power here, uh, trying to promote peace. Uh, Ricky Dozan is obviously the, the legend in Japanese wrestling and Muhammad Ali, a huge name, Ric Flair, not involved in this. And it does feel like, you know, based on what you said about Americans and size and, um, you know, the color and flamboyancy of, of your jogging outfit and Ric Flair is basically the epitome of everything they hate in North Korea. Is that fair to say? Well, what they hate in North Korea is Americans. Sure. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, loud, colorful, flamboyant, glittery sequence, robe wearing, <laughs> jet flying, limousine riding Americans are probably at the top of the list of what they re would refer to as American decadence. But, you know, go back just a little bit. Ricky Dozon was a hero uh, uh, in North Korea. I believe Ricky Dozon was originally born in North Korea and ended up in Japan, but still regarded as a hometown hero. Um, by the North Koreans. And keep in mind, they don't have a lot of heroes. So other than the dear leader. Uh, so Ricky Dozen was, was regarded as a North Korean hero. Uh, Muhammad Ali, excuse me, Muhammad Ali, uh, Antonio Noki uh, worked with uh, Ricky Dozen and I believe trained with Ricky Dozen early in his career. So that was the Ricky Dozen Antonio, Antonio Noki connection. Um, and he's the godfather of wrestling in Japan. I mean, he is the, um, I don't know if you want to say gorgeous George, but I mean, he's the Luthez. He's the, I mean, he is the, the, the godfather of, of wrestling in Japan. And Inoki, of course, is the current top star. And now he is, um, politically connected, but he's got, uh, maybe something in his past. Allegedly there were some embezzlement allegations that were brought about by a former staff member of his, and he's trying to sort of stamp that out and needs to put a new face on a bad situation. So here's the peace festival. Uh, allegedly he was even trying to put together a show in Iraq once upon a time. Uh, did you ever hear his theory on trying to put together a show in Iraq? Yeah, I was actually approached you know, by this time things that were starting to un unravel in WCW and I just wasn't interested. And I wasn't interested in going over to Iraq anyway because of the situation. But uh, I knew more about Iraq than I did about North Korea. If I would have known as much about North Korea as I did, uh, as I knew about Iraq at the time, I wouldn't have gone to North Korea either. But uh, I, you know, just, I wasn't interested in going to Iraq at that point, but yeah, I had heard about it. Lots of talent on this card. Lots of names that I wasn't familiar with because I'm not nearly as first in Japanese wrestling as maybe I should be. Uh, but it's worth going out of your way to check out. There are some legends on here, some names that even if I'm not totally uh, familiar with their career, I know their name, uh, bull Nakano and Akira Hokuto. We, we saw in America and, uh, they beat, uh, Yoshida and Toyota and Toyota is widely regarded as the best women's Japanese wrestler ever. Uh, and one of the all-time greats, I think Dave Meltzer has even said, she's probably the greatest wrestler in the history of professional wrestling, gender aside. 
how does this card get put together? Is New Japan saying, hey, here's the matches we want to present. Now you put together some matches and then let's agree on some matches we can do together or what politics are involved here for this, these North Korean shows? It was There were no politics. It was pretty much straightforward. A lot of the Americans, a lot of the WCW guys that I brought over were guys that worked regularly in Japan. So it was pretty easy, you know, building out that card. Uh, we we built it out together in terms of the the Americans, but I, you know I deferred to to New Japan. That was kind of our working relationship. When our guys were over there, um, they were booked the way they needed to be booked by New Japan. When their guys came over here, unless other arrangements have been made, um, they were booked the way I needed them booked. So you know the politics that you refer to didn't really exist. It was more just logistics. You know, the the guys from New Japan knew, for example, you know, Hashimoto and, and Scott Norton had worked extensively together in New, in, New, in Japan. So kind of a no-brainer. And we just kind of went down the line and made sure that, you know, we, we mixed and matched, you know, Americans and Japanese and th- that could have a great match. If, you know, if it was a discussion about an American versus a WCW guy versus a WCW guy, we'd work, we'd talk that through and work it out. But it... Probably took all of about an hour and a half to get through. It was not that difficult. How many of, um, I mean, this is a silly question, but were any of these guys sort of on your radar? Like, uh, you know, Crispin was on this card. Uh, he's, uh, I think he's wrestled here as wild Pegasus though. And of course, later we're going to see, uh, Benoit working for WCW. Are you like looking at any of this as a talent scout situation while you're in Japan and here in Korea, or at this point, are you just like, uh, let's get through this and go home? No, not at all. I I mean, no, I wasn't looking at it. Like, let's get through this and go home. And and I wasn't scouting talent. You know, the, the relationship that I had with new Japan. And one of the reasons that I eventually brought Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero and Dean, Dean Malenko into WCW because was because they were working extensively in Japan and, New Japan came to me because I had expressed that I wanted some cruiserweights. I wanted more of that Japanese style of wrestling to be a part of Nitro. And it was, you know, Masa Saito and Brad Ringens that suggested that I take a look at, at Chris and Eddie and Dean. Although I had seen Chris, obviously, as well, Pegasus, not only here on this card in Korea, but I had, you know, I had spent a lot of time in Japan now by this time over the last couple of years. So I was already pretty familiar with Chris. Um, but I wasn't there scouting to answer your question. Well, so one of the things I noticed when I watched this back is you guys were using a lot of theme music that would go on to be associated with other stars. You've told us before that that was just a part of the Turner library. Was that just for the pay-per-view or are you guys piping in theme music through this stadium in North Korea? No, we didn't. We didn't use our own music for the stadium. This was, that was piped in for the pay-per-view. Is there theme music at all, or is it just guys quietly walking to the ring? No, there was music, but it was provided by New Japan. Some of it maybe from from the Koreans themselves. I'm not really sure. I didn't get involved in the production for obvious reasons. You know, not fluent in Japanese or Korean, so that would have been a little di- would have been a little difficult to accommodate. So I didn't get involved in the physical production of the show at all. Uh, Ric Flair, I believe, is. Um the only contracted WCW wrestler at the first night. Why is Rick there and nobody else from WCW there? Everybody else appears the second night, not the first night. It was a creative decision that Anoki made. 
Um, I think he wanted to build up Ric Flair. That was going to be his match on the second night. So he wanted to establish some awareness, I think, for Rick. Keep in mind, you know, there are two television channels in all of North Korea, both of which are 24-hour government propaganda. There's no books. There's no magazines. There's no DVDs. There's no nothing from the outside world. The only thing that you can read, see, hear, or watch is produced by the government for purposes of propaganda and control of the, the citizens. So there was no familiarity with Ric Flair, and I think Inoki wanted to try to establish Rick as a, at least so the audience knew who he was. God knows what they were saying about him. You know, who knows? But none of us spoke Korean. But um, I'm sure that was the reason. You know, usually after a, a big show like this, a sold-out crowd, a capacity crowd, a successful event, back in 95, Ric Flair would... uh hit the bar celebrate did that happen here after night one yeah we did i mean we did have the ability you know to have cocktails you know we were again we were confined to our hotel it was all very controlled it was all very well organized but you know there was opportunities to you know once we were done you know with dinner or in this case done with the event itself certainly we all went back to the hotel and it was a big celebration it was a dinner and everybody was happy and congratulating each other but yeah you could you could partake in a cocktail or more if that was uh, what you were inclined to do. Night two, we've got Saito beating Nagata in the opener, five and a half minutes. Then Black Cat, who's subbing for uh, Otani, is going to pin El Samurai in under five minutes. While Pegasus, who we know as Chris Benoit, is going to pin two Cold Scorpio in about six and a half minutes. Black Cat, by the way, was Eddie Guerrero. Uh, there you go. Then we've got Scott Norton and Masachono. Uh, getting a win over a couple of Japanese competitors. I'm going to butcher their names now. Uh, Ayazuka and Nogami in eight minutes and 40 seconds. Uh, I guess we should talk about Scott Norton here because allegedly, and you even made, you alluded to this a little bit on commentary. Uh, he had a little bit of an incident where he found out that these guys are monitoring our phone calls. And they take that shit real serious. By the way, I'm going to go back. I'm pretty sure Black Cat was Eddie Guerrero. I may be mistaken. I'm going to have to go back and, and check on that to be 100% certain. But going to Scott Norton, um, yeah, Scott, <laughs> I know I've said this before, but I've known, I knew Scott before I got into professional wrestling. I worked with him in AWA, so we had a long-term relationship by this point. Scott is one of the most gentle, lovable people you'll ever meet that could crush you in a heartbeat, especially back then. He also couldn't stand to not be in control of whatever environment he was in. For example, I used to fly, you know, we would charter a jet, you know, to leave Atlanta to go to Nitro. This is kind of off topic, but I'll give I want to paint the picture of what Scott was like. And Scott, of course, loved being on the jet because that meant he got home, you know, after the show was over. And he lived close to me in Atlanta, so I wouldn't fly on a jet by myself. It made no financial sense, but I would have Janie Engel figure out, you know, who was on the card, how many of them lived close to me in Atlanta, and we would just do the math. If we fly these guys first class and there's six of us, what is that going to cost versus what does it cost to charter a flight? And if it came close, I would charter the flight. So I oftentimes recruited guys like Scott, who were friends of mine who lived close, to, to jump on the flight with me. And Scott would always want to do it because he'd always want to get home to his wife, but he hated being in a small plane. 
because we we'd charter either King Airs or occasionally a Learjet, which is the worst because they're the smallest. So, and once the plane took off, he'd start sweating like like a pig. I mean, he, beads of sweat were just pouring off of him. And he'd start, you know, his head would start swelling up. You could actually see his head kind of beat to the rhythm of his heart. His blood pressure would go up so high. And he'd, he'd start getting into a panic attack. So there was a lot of things that caused Scott to be unnerved. From the moment he got off the plane and lost his passport, to the indoctrination of the propaganda, to the you know Korean news crews, documentary crews following. So all of a sudden, Scott is starting to elevate his blood pressure, and he is not a happy camper. And once Scott started to lose control, it was like a freight train going downhill. Evidently, Scott, you know, he was desperate to call his wife and somehow managed to get a Korean operator, North Korean operator, to put a call through to his wife because his wife thought that, you know, oh, he's out with all the boys and they're partying and they're having all this fun and there's strippers and there's this and there's that. She thought Scott was having the time of his life while she was stuck at home. And his wife was a really, really super cool lady, but she's a very colorful character, especially back then. She was just like Scott. Let's put it that way. And so Scott, not wanting to get yelled at and beat up when he got home, gets his call through to his wife. And she starts accusing him of, you know, partying and chasing strippers and doing all this crazy shit. And Scott's trying to explain to her what it's really like. And in the process of explaining to her what it's really like in North Korea, the North Koreans who were listening on the the other end of the phone were like, taking severe notes. So his call got disconnected in the middle of the conversation. They came and got Scott. Now, I can't do a good job telling the story because I wasn't there. I didn't see it. So I'm telling you what I remember hearing anecdotally. Scott's got a new book coming out called Strong Style. Um, I would encourage everybody to find it and and take a read of this because Scott will go into depth. I haven't read it yet, but I know Scott will go into a lot of detail that I, I can't. But evidently, North Koreans came to Scott's room, arrested him at gunpoint, took him down into a basement of the hotel and started interrogating him and letting him know in no uncertain terms, I don't know how they did it, if they had an interpreter, I'm sure they did, that speaking ill of the North Korean government is just not cool. I'm sure it didn't come out that way. Scott was panicked. He thought he was going to get shot. He thought he was just going to get shot, thrown in a corner of the basement. We would never see or hear of him again. He really, really got uptight about it. And now I didn't know this was happening as it was happening. I didn't find out till after the fact, like the next day, because they held him for a long time. And again, we were separated, isolated. It's not like we could mingle much. So while he was downstairs being interrogated, the Koreans went up to his room and stripped his room, took off all the sheets, tore the phone out, took the phone out, didn't tear it out, took it out. Um, no soap, no, no, no anything. I mean, basically he had a, a room with all of the comforts, be the, as they were, um, stripped out of the room, and he was confined to that hotel. And he, he was not a happy camper. 
but there was nothing he could do about it. But I encourage you to, like I said, if you if you can get Scott's book, I may do an interview with him on Patreon as soon as I get back from the UK, and we'll talk about his experience pertaining to this particular uh, incident. But it's pretty colorful. And like I said, I didn't know about it till after it was over. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the next match. We've got Road Warrior Hawk in a singles match here and getting a win over Yasuda in two minutes and 21 seconds. Allegedly, it was originally scheduled to be the Road Warriors versus Yasuda and Hashimoto, but Animal didn't appear. And obviously, they'd have some sort of a finish problem if uh, Hashimoto worked against Hawk in a singles match because Hashimoto is the world champ at this time. But what I want to talk about is the rumor and innuendo that during this tour, a fight took place between two cold Scorpio and road warrior Hawk. Allegedly the story goes something like this. Hawk comes on the bus with Rick and Rick was outside of a bus that Scorp and Hawk were on and Scorpio didn't like Rick flair. So he said something about him. Hawk confronts Scorpio about what he said and they wind up in a fight. Uh, I wasn't there. Do you remember hearing about this fight? Only long after it allegedly happened, I, we'd have to talk to Rick about that. I didn't see it. I didn't hear about it till after it happened, quite a bit after it happened. So I'm not, I don't think it happened in Korea. It may have happened in Japan before we got there. That would be my guess because there was not an opportunity for a lot of extracurricular activity once we got to Korea. I could be wrong. Rick would know better than I. Um, but yeah, I, I wasn't there. I didn't see it either. Next up, we've got the Steiner brothers reversing their loss from two weeks ago against, uh, Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke Sasaki in 11 minutes and 51 seconds. Um, you got any good Steiner brother stories from this trip? Feels like these guys would have stuck out a little bit. You know, Rick, Rick was cool. Um, he understood, uh, probably a little more than Scott. You know, Scott was a little bit like Scott Norton. He, he had no margin for patience. Um, I don't think he quite grasped, grasped the situation um, for what it was. And there were a couple of different occasions. One in particular, I remember, uh, we were at a, it was an event. Now, this is prior to the show, the first show. We were at an outdoor park, and it was kind of like an outdoor festival, food festival type of thing. And there was dancers, and there was music, and there was food. And it was in a really, you know, beautiful park somewhere close to Pyongyang. And they had made all of this food for us out on these grills, hibachis, and things like that. And I, I remember Scott, you know, grabbing a fistful of chicken or whatever it was and taking a bite of it. And it was pretty horrible food to begin with, but rather than just kind of discreetly setting it down and moving along and looking for something else that might be edible, he made a bit of a scene threw the food on the ground, which to the North Koreans was very respectable. And you have to remember these people would eat rats if they could find them. They just can't find anymore. They're extinct. And, and by the way, I'm going to make a, a point here out of context to a degree, but just to add scope and, and, and tone to what we were facing, it was reported at during this time, the North Koreans had been in an extensive famine, like for 15 or 20 years. It was one of the reasons why the country was so poor and people were dying right and left. 
But in the outskirts of Pyongyang, out in the country, North Koreans would literally eat their dead. Not exaggerating. This is not anecdotal. You can read about it, study about it. It's well documented that outside of Pyongyang, where people are even poorer than they are in Pyongyang, which is pretty damn poor, they're forced to eat their dead. That's how scarce food is in, in North Korea. So Scott doing probably what would have been eh, maybe not acceptable, but not surprising either in the United States. If you're outdoors, you take a bite of something that tastes horrible, you throw it on, especially if it's chicken because you thought it might make you sick if you ate it. You threw it on the ground, which is really super offensive to the North Koreans. And I remember a couple executives from New Japan came over and said, oh, we got we to gotta get Scott out of here. You got to smarten Scott up. You know, we, got, we can't have this. <laughs> because, again, we had North Korean government officials surrounding us and watching every move we made. And we wanted to try not to offend anybody more than necessary. Well, it's, um, it's understandable. Well, let's talk about the main event. I guess before we get there, I should mention that Akira Hokuto pinned Bull Nakano in eight minutes and four seconds. Uh, the winner is supposed to meet Toyota on September 1st at Budokan Hall. But the main event is Flair and Anoki, which is a big deal. Anoki is one of the most famous wrestlers in the history of Japan. I mean, he is... Uh, you know, not based on style, but just name. He is a Japanese Hulk Hogan or Ric Flair. Meltzer would report Hogan was originally offered the spot against Anoki in the main event on the second night. Uh, so he would have been able to maintain his mark as being the headliner in front of the biggest crowd in history, but turned it down, giving reasons most believed to be cover reasons for not wanting to put Anoki over. At some oh my God! Before Anoki yeah, retires, we couldn't, get through it. we couldn't get through a fucking podcast without Dave Meltzer bullshit. How in the name of fuck would Dave Meltzer know that? He doesn't. He didn't. It's Dave Meltzer bullshit. Oh God. Hulk Hogan didn't go over there because he didn't want to travel <laughs> to Korea. End of story. It had nothing to do with not wanting to put Anoki over. Oh my God. Well, Flair did lose. Uh, I guess we should talk about that. 14 minutes and 52 seconds. Anoki's 51 here. Rick is 46. Uh, it's not a terrible match. It's not the best match, uh, but it is a match and it is surreal to see it in front of that many people and especially two big names. Let's take you to what Eric, or I'm sorry, what Rick wrote in his book. Uh, of course he, he lays out exactly how this comes to be. And then he writes and includes the language. Eric told me that George Foreman had been approached first, but wanted too much money. Same thing with Hulk Hogan. I later discovered that sting was also asked to attend, but declined in reality. I was Bischoff's fourth choice. Jimmy Carter, Ted Turner, and Jane Fonda were supposedly on the list of attendees, but they all backed out. So the two biggest names of the festival were Muhammad Ali and Ric Flair. Here's Can we stop right there? Yep. That's an awful lot of nonsense okay. to just skip over. That's an awful, and I love Rick, and we're dear friends at this point. I have nothing but respect and love for him, but that's some bullshit right there. George Foreman? Where the fuck did that come from? George Foreman's name never came up in any conversation with anybody associated with this. It's absolutely ridiculous. I have no idea where that, I have no idea how somebody could even make that one up. Well, Ted Turner was not, was same thing. 
Ted Turner, Jane Fonda? Are you fucking kidding me? Never. And no, Sting wasn't approached. So, I, I, again, I don't know if that was the guy who was helping Rick write the book. I don't know if Mick just, Rick just misremembers or was trying to add color to the book. And as much as I love him dearly, that's some bullshit right there. Let's continue. He, were, he wrote, I went because it was an opportunity to associate myself with someone like Muhammad Ali as an international sports dignitary and represent professional wrestling to a huge population who had never seen it. Bischoff told me, quote, I promise you, I will make you bigger than Lawrence Taylor, the football player who was participating in WrestleMania 11 that year and monopolizing headlines around the United States. Uh, he also tells a similar story about, you know, having, uh, being stuck with a cultural attache or whatever you called it. And, uh, that <laughs> Scott Norton had some problems when he told his wife on the phone, this place sucks and that they, uh, were carted around in government cars and had their passports taken away. But one of the things he wrote here was they split us up at the hotel, the way they did suspected traitors. They wanted to segregate and brainwash. I didn't see anybody until our handlers decided that the time was right. And the event itself was unlike anything I'd ever witnessed a total of 380,000 spectators over two nights. Uh, as we approached Mayday stadium, I looked out the window and saw a sea of people huddled together all on foot converging. And the first night I was seated with the head of the North Korean sports ministry. And I forget which match was in the ring, but he suddenly asked me how come that wrestler was able to knock his knock down his opponent so easily. That doesn't look real. And flair said, you never know till you're out there. Those guys are pretty strong. And when the North Korean would continue, how can he pick up his opponent like that and hold him over his head? Doesn't the other wrestler fight back? I don't understand. And Rick says, well, when I wrestle tomorrow night, no one's going to do that to me. He and the other bureaucrats were only figuring out right then that it was all predetermined. I don't know what line of shit Anoki had given them, but the North Koreans obviously thought they had the Olympics coming. The tour was supposed to last two days. WCW had paid for Beth and Reed to stay at a hotel in Japan as an incentive for my participation. And they were waiting for me there for reasons that were never explained. We wound up staying five days and Ali and I found ourselves being dragged from place to place with me to meet with different communist officials. At one point, my minder asked me how much my watch cost. And when I told him he marveled, can anybody really have that kind of money? That's more than I make in five years. I asked him a salary and it was the equivalent of about seven American dollars a week. Had I realized that I never would have, never would have worn that watch in front of him. Uh, this is the other world here. I mean, this is like something that maybe many of us listening to this can't really identify with, uh, when you talk about, you know, just the, the economic disparity between America and North, especially Ric Flair and. Uh, a North Korean citizen here. But the thing that stuck out the most to me is when flair sort of pieces together in his, in his book here, that maybe North Korea didn't know that wrestling was predetermined beforehand. Do you know if that was even discussed? No, I don't know. And you know, look, I, out of respect for Rick, I'm, I'm just going to pass on commenting on some of those statements. And I'm sure his firsthand stuff you know, his watch and hearing about the government official and, you know, the government official kind of wondering what was going on and why it was happening the way it was. I believe all of that. Um, but I don't think Inoki, uh, two things that stand out. One, the itinerary in North Korea was set long before we left the United States. So, you know, 
how Rick kind of remembered that it was only supposed to be two days. Yes, there were two shows, but the itinerary and everything that we were supposed to do was established long before we left the United States. So that part, I, you know, I just got to get past that. Uh, but to suggest that Anoki conned the North Koreans by making them think this was going to be a real athletic contest, uh, just use a little common sense and arrive to your own conclusion and ask yourself if that really makes any sense. One of the things he talked about was hanging out with Ali after the shows when, when they're being carted around and he says they're at a function sitting at a big round table with a bunch of North Korean luminaries. And one of the guys starts rambling on about the moral superiority of North Korea and how they could take out the United States or Japan anytime they wanted. And suddenly this is directly from the book. Suddenly Ali piped up clear as a bell. No wonder we hate these motherfuckers. My hair practically stood up on my head. Oh shit. I whispered. Don't start talking now. Before we left North Korea, our handlers requested that I make a speech at the airport. They had given specific points. They expected me to articulate things like North Korea being a worker's paradise and that America sucked. I looked at Bischoff and told him, I can't say this. The last thing I wanted was to be quoted in an American press, making statements. I didn't mean. So I just spouted out some generic comments and thanked everyone for their hospitality. This is how I was quoted by the official North Korean press agency. Before I leave this beautiful and peaceful country, I would like to make a tribute to the great leader, Mr. Uh, Kim Sung, or whatever his name is. Kim uh, Sung. Yeah, there you go. Uh, who had devoted his life to the Korean people's happiness, prosperity, and Korean unification. His excellency will always be with us. And as soon as our plane landed in Japan, I bent down and literally kissed the ground. I was so glad to finally be back on friendly soil. What do you remember about the press trying to, you know, get us, get some quotes out of you right there at the end? Well, they didn't try to get any out of me, but they did try to get them out of Rick. And I absolutely 100% believe, you know, Rick's recollection of that. And also the interpretation, they weren't interpreting what Rick said. They were telling the Korean people what they wanted, wanted them to think Rick said, because nobody can speak English over there. There was no translation, uh, literal translation. So, uh, and the way that, you know, Rick remembers that statement being read or wherever they got that from sounds absolutely 100% on point with the type of propaganda that the Koreans were trying to achieve. That's why, you know, going back earlier, when I talked to you about how Sonny and I were standing at the North Korean version of the Arc de Triomphe and our attache was trying to engage us in dialogue about World War II and how horrible the Americans were and, you know, killed millions of North Koreans or whatever the story was, the propaganda was. She was trying to get us to engage and have a conversation. And at that point, I knew I can't I can't have this conversation. Similarly to what Rick realized leaving the airport when they gave him, when they told him the speech they wanted him to give, and he realized he couldn't, and he shouldn't, and he didn't. I absolutely, it sounds a hundred percent on point, based on everything else that we experienced while we were there. Why did it ever happen again? Um, well, nobody ever proposed it. <laughs> First of all, uh, Antonio didn't call me and say, "Okay, let's do a World Peace Festival too." <laughs> so. Uh, that's one big reason. Uh, and I wouldn't have done it again. You know, I, I got everything out of it. I, I could get 
keep in mind, going back to the beginning of this podcast, I didn't do it just because I thought, hey, this will be fun. Um, although the the part of me that has always loved to experience things that I've never experienced before, visit cultures I've never visited before, as a product of the 60s and 70s in school, I was taught, especially in the 60s, you know, just how evil communism was and you know, propaganda and just how different a communist state was to what we experienced here in the United States. And I had always wanted and still do want to go to the Soviet Union, not that or not, not the Soviet Union now, but Russia. But as a young man uh, and even out of high school and early college, I, I really did want to go to the former Soviet Union to experience it firsthand. So there was a part of me on a personal level that wanted to do something that had never been done before or shouldn't have been done just to experience it and say I did. But the bigger reason was business. And the business side of it was this will firmly help establish us as a truly international, you know, brand. We're not only, you know, stepping outside of the United States and, you know, at that point, WWE was spending a lot of time in Europe, but they weren't, they weren't going to a lot of other countries. We were spending a lot of time in Japan and now the opportunity to go to North Korea um, seemed to me like, it would help get us to where we wanted to be or where I wanted us to be. But we didn't get the press I was hoping to get. Um, there was a CNN reporter over there at the time. His name was Dave. It was either Dave Chinoy. Or, no, it was Mike Chinoy. He was with CNN. And I thought at the very least, you know, Mike being, you know, with CNN and Turner and us being over there. I mean, we had dinner with Mike. I mean, he, he traveled with us for uh a day or so, uh, and covered it. I thought at the very least CNN will cover it. And they didn't to any extent. So by the time we got back, I said, okay, I checked that box. I experienced that on a personal basis on a business from a business perspective. I didn't get nearly what I was hoping to get out of it in terms of press and branding. So had I been invited to do a world peace festival, Pyongyang two, um, I wouldn't have done it. Uh, allegedly most attended show ever. You confirm that, right? It depends, you know, in all fairness. Um, and yeah, I guess if, if you consider mandatory attendance to be an attendance figure, it's kind of a cloudy area for me. I mean, I'd like to be able to pat myself on the back and say, I was part of producing, you know, the, the world's most you know, high, uh, most attended wrestling event ever in history. That would make me feel good about myself over a beer someday, but it wouldn't be really true. What, uh, what's Ted say when you get back, you ever have a conversation with Turner? No, it was really, you know, it's interesting. And by the way, I'm one more Muhammad Ali footnote. Uh, while I was over there, um, Muhammad Ali's photographer, who is a guy, and you can Google him. His name is Howard Bingham. And Howard had been Muhammad Ali's photographer for decades, had been everywhere with him, and and had photographed some of the most iconic Muhammad Ali photographs that are out there today were taken by Howard Bingham. So while I didn't, you know, I got a lot of time with Muhammad on the way over there and a little bit of time with, with him while I was there, but they, they had kept us pretty much separated and the North Koreans wanted to use Muhammad Ali for propaganda purposes, separate and apart from me. I, I was fairly insignificant 
as the owner or the president of WCW at that time. I didn't really fulfill a lot of propaganda goals for the North Koreans. Uh, but obviously Muhammad Ali did. So once the ball started rolling, I didn't get to spend a lot of time with Muhammad while we were there. Certainly on the way back and while we were in Japan, I did. But one of the most interesting aspects of the the period, in addition to just, you know, jogging down the middle of the street and seeing, you know, fear and death in the eyes of people I'd never met before, uh, was listening to Howard Bingham talk about Muhammad Ali's, you know, rise and what he went through, you know, in Vietnam or during the Vietnam War and, you know, resisting the draft and all that. I, I just learned so much from Howard and we stayed in pretty close touch until about 1999 or so. And I kind of lost track of Howard. But to this day, Howard took a picture. Now, this occurred after this, this occurred in 1998, a couple of years later, when Muhammad Ali was a guest of New Japan Pro Wrestling for one of the big New Year's Eve shows. And so was I. Uh, I came over there and the Japanese flew my wife and my kids over as well. And at this big super show event that we did at the Tokyo Dome, um, I sat and talked to Muhammad Ali, and I don't know if I've ever told you this story before, but it had been the first time that I'd seen Muhammad since the Korean trip. And, you know, he, he, he gave me a big hug, and we went over to the corner, and we talked for a little bit. And then he asked me, and again, you know, he had to whisper, so I was leaning down so he could whisper in my ear, and he said, did you see the Olympic opening ceremonies, 1996, summer of 96? I said, of course I did. And he said, tell me the truth. Do you think I embarrassed myself? And even recounting this, I get a little weepy because I was so, I was dumbstruck that he asked me that question. And I said, Muhammad, it was one of the most exciting things I've ever seen in sports. When I saw it, I broke down and cried. It, that's how much it moved me. And he said, okay, I just want to, I just hope I didn't embarrass myself. And I just, you know, I gave him a hug and, and that was the end of our conversation. And about a half an hour later, I look over and there's a lot of, we were in a big green room and there was food and beverages and so forth. A lot of people in there, probably 60 or 80 people in there. And I, we were at the Tokyo Dome and I, I looked over and I saw Muhammad Ali talking to my son Garrett, <clears throat> who was probably 14 at the time. And again, Muhammad, he's, he's, he's doing little magic tricks with his fingers, which he, he loved to do. He loved to make people laugh. And I, you know, I'm watching out of the corner of my eye and I'm thinking, how amazing is this that a sports icon that I grew up when I was younger than Garrett, you know, admiring and, you know, I don't want to say worshiping, but close to it. And now here he is, you know, doing magic tricks for my son at the Tokyo Dome. It was just like one of those magic freaking moments. And Howard Bingham was there. And, you know, I had talked to Howard earlier in the night. And Howard's taking picture of Garrett, taking pictures of Muhammad Ali talking to my son Garrett. And at some point, Muhammad Ali leaned down into Garrett's ear and said, Hey, do you have any girlfriends? And Garrett, you know, he's 14 years old. He's a little embarrassed. And he said, Well, not really. And Muhammad Ali, and I'm paraphrasing it now because I didn't hear the conversation, but I remember Garrett, you know, telling me about it. You know, Muhammad Ali was giving my son Garrett points on how to pick up girls. <laughs> and at one point, Garrett busted out laughing, and Howard Bingham was right there snapped a picture of it and then the show started and everything you know got crazy and i didn't see howard for the rest of the evening and then time went by and i forgot about it so howard bingham if you're out there 
you've got a picture of my son and, and Muhammad Ali that I would cut off a body part for. So love, love, love to be able to get that one someday. Well, there you go, boys and girls. That's going to wrap up a very special edition of WCW in Korea. I know it's been one of our more requested shows and we're happy to bring it to you. We've got uh, some fun stuff coming your way next week. We're going to be talking about slamboree. Can't believe you guys love 1997 as much as you do, but that's where we'll go. And then we'll have uh, another slamboree after that. And then a couple of weeks of something a little different. Stay tuned for what we've got up our sleeves there, but I think you're going to be pretty excited about it. I know I am. Uh, in the meantime, we'd love to get your feedback find us on Twitter at 83 weeks. You can find Eric at E Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Derek Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.